Hey guys, John Polamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, January 28th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you see or hear on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I am not a financial planner. I cannot give you individual investment advice. This is for information purposes only. Please do your own due diligence and research. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, uh, so here was a chart from uh, Bloomberg, which I found interesting. And basically what it shows is uh, 12-month average, trailing 12-month average of free cash flow yield for these very large uh, international oil companies. And what I found fascinating uh, was the fact that the top three companies with free cash flow yield among these uh, super majors are all European companies. And why I found that surprising was is because um, they have been on the forefront of uh, at least mouthing the words that they were going to transition to green energy. And you would note that the S&P, the average of the S&P 500 stock is a cat free cash flow yield of 4.9%. You see Chevron at 10.3, Exxon at 12.5. Then you see Total uh, 22%. So that could be, you know, a manifestation of just not spending a lot of money on um, new exploration projects. And so as this cash has rolled in from these higher than average oil prices, uh, they've been able to have a higher cash flow. And uh, I don't know, I'd go into each one of these, uh, you know, basically the, the title of the slides is capital discipline and high prices are adding up to a cash bonanza for big oil. But what I find interesting is that um, we saw the big uh, announcement from Chevron this week that they were going to do a $75 billion stock buyback, which people have asked me what I think about it. I mean, I don't really follow the super majors, so I really don't know what they're doing except for a cursory, uh, you know, examples like this. But maybe instead of, a lot of people have said that the stock price is a little bit too high. It's not a real value. And I say, well, why not buy another oil company? If, if that's the case, and we know a lot of these uh, oil companies are selling at low multiples, then it may be a good idea to do that. But I'm not in the management there. It doesn't really affect me. I don't own these things. But I do find it interesting that uh, these European companies have these tremendous cash flow yields. And I guarantee you that Total or BP or Shell could not get away with doing a buyback like that. Um, just the way that the political situation is in, is in Europe, uh, it just won't fly. But this did surprise me, uh, but maybe it shouldn't have because, again, capital discipline, if you're not spending money, you're basically blowing down your production over time. It's going to come back and jump, bite them in the butt probably. But, uh, you know, that's just, this is kind of fascinating. That's That's a pretty decent cash flow yield, 22%. And speaking of the buyback from chevron uh there was a, uh, one of the many articles i'll just give a few uh tidbits it says chevron plans to buy back 75 billion dollars of shares 
and increased dividend payouts after a year of record profits that evoked angry denunciations from politicians around the world as soaring energy prices squeeze consumers. The stock re re repurchase program will kick in April 1st and will triple the size of the previous authorization unveiled in 2019, the company said in a statement Wednesday. The program is equivalent to almost one-fourth of the company's market value and five times the current level of annual buybacks. Well, this is what um, people want. This is what shareholders want, right? And of course, the demonizations begin. Only the wealthy will benefit. Uh, the Biden administration came out with a statement that, uh, why are you doing these buybacks for wealthy shareholders? Uh, instead, you should be investing in more oil and gas to lower prices in, in you know, the United States for consumers. You know, that's what they say. But when they, you know, they also have said, Mr. Biden has said he wants to put these companies out of business. So we've talked about this before. Um, and uh, we'll see. With a split Congress, it's not like they can haul them in front of Congress and, you know, have windfall profit taxes. It won't happen. And so I've explained this before that the uh, these companies are price takers or cyclical businesses. There's many years when they barely make any money at all and they're net destroyers of capital. And so during a five, seven or 10 year period, there's going to be a couple years of super uh, normal profits. And that's the time where they make hay that makes up for the rest of the time. And of course, with the, you know, Bubis, Americanus and the rest of the people, uh, you know, politicians are going to come out and, you know, throw accusations. It's not really going to affect anything, but this is what's going to happen. Uh, last blurb here, even though energy prices have pulled back since the early phases of Russia's assault on Ukraine, I just love the press. Can't, even have a financial article without getting some kind of dig in. Analysts expect U.S. oil companies' profits to stay strong because they have kept capital spending in check, unlike in previous boom cycles. Instead, the windfall has been used to pay back debt and increase investor returns. So how is this actionable for us? Well, the, the you know, we hold a lot of, we not a lot, we have a few uh, smaller cap and cap mid cap oil producers that aren't going to garner the same attention and have been already doing what a lot of the majors are doing, right? They've been paying back debt, buying back shares, announcing dividend programs. And that's what we want to see, right? So uh, nobody's really going nuts and running around, you know, letting the money burn a hole in their pocket. Spending is increasing. Uh, we saw that last week in the reports from three of the large oil, oil field services providers, Schlumberger, Baker Hughes, and Halliburton. Uh, I don't have time to go in this week's uh, market report on each one of those, but if you go and look at the transcripts of the earnings calls, uh, all of the managements were very bullish going forward. So uh, spending is increasing. It's just not in, like it was in previous cycles. And here is a chart that kind of illustrates that this is Chevron's capital spending uh, for the, going back to 2012. You would note that the peak was back here in 2013 when they spent a little bit over $40 billion. This is the uh, pandemic lows. Obviously, this is where oil prices were the lowest uh, when they went negative. Um, but you will note we're not even back to 50% of the peak levels. It is increasing. 
but slowly. Because as I said before, the no one's going to go drill, baby, drill with this kind of political uh, situation or background that we have now. Uh, people aren't going to go and do that. Like I said, I've explained this many times before. I don't have to explain it again. This is how you keep your job as the CEO of an oil company. You give money back to shareholders. So this is from Crestcat Capital. Uh, Tavi Costa. I would follow him on Twitter. He puts out a lot of good charts, but uh, this chart is pretty cool. A lot of people aren't really paying attention to this SPR thing, like when's it really end and things like that. But this chart shows the uh, smallest draw on the SPR for over a year. So you see how it's been tailing off basically through the fall now. And as we get into this new year, it's basically almost nothing now. So um, that's one of the things that we were hoping to see in conjunction with the Chinese reopening. You know, we start counting these barrels, how much oil demand comes back with China, how much, you know, add in the the, the the end of the SPR supply that has to be made up now somewhere else. And so, you know, that's what I've been doing. That's why you get to that 103, 104, maybe 105 barrels uh, a day demand sometime in 2023. And in a world that is probably is not capable of supplying that level of daily production. And as we just said and noted in the previous slides, these super majors, at least, and many of the mid-cap and juniors are simply not spending enough money to uh, change the situation. And again, they're not going to until the zeitgeist, until the societal uh, attitude and government's attitude towards them changes. Uh, so we'll, that's a long way off. This is why I think that you're going to have higher sustained oil prices, energy prices across the board. Uh, with volatility, of course, for a longer sustained period of time. Here we go. Uh, this was uh, off Twitter also. This is a uh, number of passenger miles. I put it here, air travel recovering nicely. You see the uh, basically uh, air travel, basically the number of passenger miles grew at anywhere from six to six and a half percent a year compounded annual growth rate. And you can see what compounding does over time. Uh, you've basically more than doubled uh, the amount of passenger traffic since 2004. Then you saw what happened during the pandemic. Basically dropped by more than half and then it's been slowly working its way back. And so, you know, we need to get back. We'll get back to these levels. Maybe we won't because if you have noted several I don't know the exact total, but uh, some of the um, European countries are limiting the amount of flights that can leave their airports each day. But again, this won't matter when you start talking about the emerging markets, when you start talking about China and India and all these places. It's just going to overwhelm anything that the Euro Europeans do or even the U.S. So this is going to recover that. This is what I'm trying to make the point that. When it comes to oil demand and jet fuel demand, all these things, we haven't even recovered from the pandemic yet. And we're already, you know, having some issues with uh, oil demand or oil supply, sorry. And so if you start looking at things like this data points, I mean, you're still off by, well, at least from last year, another million passenger miles have to be added back just to get back to even. And like I said, you know, you have to make up for these other years 
as more people travel, uh, as people again in wealthier in emerging markets, as they get wealthier, they start traveling on air, airlines. It's like one of the stocks that I have in the AIA portfolio uh, has the majority of its uh, well has all of its uh, investments in India, and the largest holding in the company is a controlling stake in the second largest i believe airport in um in uh india and uh you know we're talking tens of millions of people a year going through the place and growing rapidly so uh i expect this to continue there's also uh, i was taking a look at this the other day there is uh, some airport operators um that haven't fully recovered either these are pretty decent businesses they're almost like uh pipeline businesses or kind of like highway toll operators you know it doesn't really matter you know which airlines operating at the airport that they're running they get fees for you know the amount number of passengers go through the place you get landing fees and all this stuff so air travel like in latin america still recovering nicely all over the world and so you have several actionable you know, potentials here, some of these, uh, if you want to look into it, but also, I mean, just jet fuel demand, you could see what, I mean, it should easily be, even considering the last three years of trying to get back to normal, we could easily be over, you know, 5 million passenger miles uh, uh, for 2023. Uh, I just don't see, uh, you know, I see continued, you know, especially China opening it up now. And like I said, almost all the countries now have put aside their travel restrictions. We should see uh, more and more uh, of a recovery. I, I, I think 2023 would be, you know, you'd be closing in on the old, old highs. This was an interesting article. This is something that I said would eventually happen. Uh, these things take time, of course. I'm talking about changes in the political environment, changes in public opinion. Uh, when the pain starts, when the high prices start, when the threat to your livelihood starts, all of a sudden, then your uh, views on things have a tendency to change also. And what we have here is an article that was on oilprice.com. German public opinion now favors nuclear power. Uh, some snippets from the article. For decades, Germany has maintained a love-hate relationship with nuclear power. Currently, Germany has three existing nuclear reactors that produce 6% of the country's power supply, a far cry from the 1990s when 19 nuclear power plants produced about a third of the country's electricity supply. Russia's war in Ukraine is forcing a rethink of energy security, not only in Germany, but also by the entire continent. Up until last year, Germany and Russia were major energy partners, with the latter providing the country with the majority of its oil and natural gas. But Russia's war has led to Europe and Germany scrambling for alternative supplies as winter looms. Germany is now rethinking its nuclear phase-out strategy, and the public is falling in line. Nuclear energy is seen as a preferable energy source to a fallback to burning coal. According to Dutch-based anti-nuclear group WISE, nuclear plants produce 117 grams of CO2 emissions per kilowatt hour, much lower compared to burning lignite, which emits over 1,000 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. So even this anti-nuclear group shows in the data that nuclear uh, 
is 90% less of a CO2 emitter, and yet they're anti-nuclear. I don't know these people who they are, but this is what I said would happen. I mean, this is all about energy security. This is all about certainty. You know, if you read the article, it explained the whole genesis and the progression of the anti-nuclear movement you know how it's went back as political things changed political attitudes in germany changed over time you know had this big movement in the 70s late 70s early 80s the green party they were anti-nuclear then uh, other you know more moderate governments came in there and allowed for nuclear power and gave extensions and then you're back to this green-led coalition that's turning all these things off but in the end we go back to you know stealing uh doomberg's you know provo uh profound statement when politics meets physics physics wins every time and so reality is setting in and people are getting upset and so when public opinion you know these are politicians they're going to they'll figure out a way to uh you know or maybe they won't Maybe this particular coalition will go away and a new coalition will come in to power that's not going to be so negative towards nuclear power. But to shut down 19, you know, 16 out of your 19 nuclear power plants, that's crazy. And if you look at the age of some of the plants, they're not that old. I mean, Germany's really being stupid about this, quite frankly. Uh, and when you see, you know, we've already showed the uh, and talked about the um, protest out by the lignite mines, the surface miners, you know, it looks like this hellscape or moonscape with this huge bucket miners you know huge monstrosities you know with the police out there in riot gear keeping the protesters away so um i think that you know hopefully this will create the opportunity for germany to reverse their views on nuclear power uh they were a little bit hasty after fukushima uh i think Chancellor Merkel, but you know I'm not German. It's not really not my problem. But what I'm saying is, is I think that uh, again, I think eventually, no matter what, uh, I've never seen you know these societies collapse themselves over ideology. They move in these directions until it becomes too painful, and then you know the political zeitgeist or the political uh, Overton window is driven by the extremes, right? And then what happens is, is the great middle of the of these societies that isn't paying attention half the time finally wakes up when a crisis happens and they say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why are my power prices up three times? Why is my business, why am I having to shut my business down because I don't have, a, I can't pay for the power? And that's when people start getting, that's when you have the change. So it takes time, right? It takes sometimes several election cycles, but uh, this is a very positive uh, for the world and positive quite could be po positive for uh uranium and uh another brick in the wall of the bullish thesis so this is what happens you know everybody was kind of a couple people bagged on me said oh you got you were wrong john and your thesis you know we didn't really have this big collapse in europe well you didn't i admit that i didn't i don't think anybody expected to have as warm of a winter as we had um for the Europeans to spend half a trillion euros on basically sucking up all of the LNG cargoes, paying whatever to get their storage capacity up or their storage, natural gas storage. And, you know, they did what they needed to do. That's not repeatable over several years. 
eventually there will be a cold winter in Germany or in Europe, and uh, you won't be able to suck up all the LNG around the world. And what has happened, uh, this isn't the only reason in Pakistan, but this is what's happened in several countries. Because the Europeans are so much wealthier, they can pay, they can outbid countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh and other emerging countries for these limited pool of LNG cargoes. And that's partially what happened in Pakistan. It also happened in Bangladesh, a couple other countries where they simply cannot pay uh, if they're bidding against the Europeans. The Europeans, you know, can, they're just so much more wealthier. So we have this huge energy crisis in Pakistan. You know, Pakistan is not a joke, it has 230 million people. So what basically happened there was uh, the government was having this, I can't believe, this is another example of stupidity of government. So they came up, they said, we'll fix it. We'll, 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 how we'll do this is during the nighttime hours, we will shut down a lot of the power plants and that will, you know, because people are sleeping and the demand won't be as high. The problem is you can't do that. You have to maintain, to keep the grid viable for other reasons, thermal reasons in power plants. You can't just take thermal power plants up and down all the time. Most of them are designed not to run like that. There's specific, you know, plants that are, are, are designed for peaking operations and the typical power plants designed to be brought up to a steady state and just run it continuously. And so basically what happened here is they got a big mess and basically the whole country had a blackout. So you had water issues because water pumps, sewage issues. I mean, you can read the article. It was a total mess, okay? And uh, here's a few snippets from the article. The long-awaited winter energy crisis has finally hit, but it wasn't in Europe. On Monday, almost the entirety of Pakistan was left without power when a misguided energy saving strategy by the government backfired. Runaway inflation, a severely weakened currency, and rapidly emptying foreign exchange reserves have left Pakistan on the brink of economic collapse. The country of 230 million people is plagued by overdue energy payments and was seeking to cut costs by lowering energy use when the plant when the plan went off the rails, leaving people across the country without power or water for more than 12 hours. Economists and development experts have been warning for months that Europe would not be the real victim of the European energy crisis. Rather, it is the import-dependent and cash-poor countries in the developing world that will suffer most. And so, okay, you're like, why are you telling me this? Why do I care? Because this feeds into my theory of the continued further bifurcation. This opens the door for Russia and China and Middle Eastern countries to step up and say, okay, we want to bring you into the sphere of influence. We want you to be part of this BRICS. Um, maybe, you know, 230 million people as a, you know, ballast against India, which is, you know, uh, there's all these machinations, all these political things going on and so you know you could say well we won't let you and how do you feel if you're in pakistan and you know that part of the reason is is that you know they have a lot of internal issues there that are self-created but part of the issue is they don't have the money and can't compete with bidding against the europeans for these cargoes these these gas cargoes so that gets out there and so you know this is this could be more part of the you know um well give us more access to your ports as part of belt and road and we'll get the russians and iranians to make a deal with you i mean you could think about the possible 
you know, what could happen. I'm not suggesting it will happen, but what I'm suggesting is, is that this is another, uh, another uh, log on the fire of, you know, well, why, why am I, you know, the Europeans and the Americans, the Western powers, uh, you know, don't care about you think they're going to go on opinion pieces on the, on whatever the Fox news is in Pakistan and say, well, we have an incompetent government here. It's our politicians fault. We mismanaged the economy for decades. And this is, you know, the culmination of that. No, it's going to be, we were outbid by these, by the Europeans and these, you know, that's, that's easier to say, blame someone else. And so, but you're going to see, you're going to see more of this, right? This is about energy security. And you see what happens, you know, a country of 230 million people without power or water for 12 hours. Now, it's not the end of the world because, you know, as I've talked about before, I mean, with the war in Ukraine, I have family members there that go without water and electricity and heat for days sometimes. I mean, you can survive. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. But again, it, it, it doesn't make people happy. Let's put it that way. And um, uh, this is uh, it just opens opportunity for this further bifurcation for this, you know, emergence of that Central Asia, you know, belt from Turkey across the stands through Pakistan up into China with Russia, you know, supplying a lot of the raw materials for them. So I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but I just thought this is interesting because that's kind of my thesis, what's going on, you know, the bifurcation of the global East and global South away from the hegemon. And these type of things are going to incentivize people to uh, go into the orbit of you know, hey, I'll make a deal with you, Russia. We'll pay this much or you'll give us credits or whatever. And that gives Russia and China and these other folks, you know, more influence in these areas. Uh, is there constantly, you're constantly seeing, you know, the um, these trading, you know, like I said before, countries don't have allies, they have interests. You know, I was just reading an article about Uzbekistan and Uzbekistan was saying, absolutely not. We will not get into this three-party deal about natural gas with Russia and Kazakhstan and us. And long story short, that kind of went away. And then Gazprom's in there making a deal. So um, countries say all kinds, people say all kinds of things. They're trying to get an advantage. They're trying to position themselves for a negotiation. What they say publicly is very you know, interesting for the newsies. But what is actually happening in real life? What are the actions? That's what you need to be interested in. So here we go. North Asia cranks coal imports to fuel industrial reboot. Thermal coal imports into China, Japan, and South Korea, three of the world's largest coal users, hit their highest combined total in 16 months in December as the North Asian manufacturing powerhouses primed their economies for growth in 2023. Japan and South Korea have extensive supply chain ties with China, which meant that each country suffered slowdowns in both productivity and demand growth in 2022 as China's pandemic curb stifled movement of goods and people over much of the year. But thanks to a slew of stimulus and easing measures passed by Beijing that are designed to kickstart a revival in China's economy this year, factories and industries throughout North Asia are now also primed for a pickup. So again, you know, I think I mentioned it in a video a week or two ago that China's coal use made an all-time new high record in 2022. I suspect that will continue in the 2023 as they open up and economic, you know, uh, activity accelerates. 
as this article uh, intimated, uh, you're going to see the spillover effect to their trading partners, partners like South Korea and Japan, which also are large coal users. So long story short, I continue to be bullish on coal. We've seen coal prices pull back recently. They, they've been at like, you know, extraordinary highs over the last, you know, year or so. But again, it's another, another market, another commodity that's hated and that can't really expand and meet demand. And so, uh, I don't see coal going away, at least in Asia. Uh, you know, maybe Pakistan should build some uh, coal-fired plants. But anyways, this is interesting because uh, I continue to maintain that uh, I think not everybody's figured out what's going on in China. It's going to accelerate very rapidly, and the Chinese have pumped a ton of liquidity. I think this was a Reuters article. But, you know, you're going to see the spillover effect now into these other countries as you know, chips or whatever they're making is cross-border trade that a lot goes on uh, between uh, these countries. And so, as China's economy emerges out of you know these lockdowns and this uh, hibernation, you're going to see activity accelerate. And of course, economic activity requires more energy inputs. Uh, so you're not back to normal. Now you're going to get back to normal on coal demand. We talked about the previous slide earlier in the presentation about airline miles. I mean, we're not back to pre-pandemic yet. So when we get back to pre-pandemic, I think that's when we're really going to see possibly, I'm not saying it's certain, but a good possibility that we're going to find out, you know, what, how short of energy we really are. That's, that's my opinion. So this is positive for, I didn't get a chance to go to the website or listen to this from Kaz Adamprom, but they, uh, this is from Art Hyde, Jekyll Capital. They're pretty good on the uh, uranium uh, sector. I think they're in Dallas, this hedge funds, primarily uh, uranium focused, I think. But anyways, uh, this tweet came out uh, this morning. I haven't, like I said, I haven't had a chance to deep dive this and look at the uh, you know, the CAS, I tried to bring up the CAS Adam Prom website for some reason it wouldn't come up. But anyways, uh, it says uh, cap operating update out overnight, relaxed production, realized production, finally catching up to market. Six to nine month lag has been well flagged, but supply chain and well field issues resulting in decreased production guidance for 2023, uh, likely four to five million pounds lower is what they're saying and calls. 2024 targets into question as well, in my opinion. So I guess the uh, the idea was that Kaz Prom came out with some news basically saying they're having some issues and they're forecasting decreased production of four to five million pounds for this year. This is in a market that's already undersupplied. You may recall or you may not that during the last bull market, one of the things that really got the um, bull market going, uh, Cameco had an issue at one of its mines I can't remember which mine it was. Was it MacArthur River or Cigar Lake? I don't know. But it really, it was an accelerant. It was the, it was an inflection for the market. It was one of the mines up there. I can't remember off the top of my head. But they had a production issue that was pretty significant. And that's when the market really started to take off. Um, I'll have to look that up to make sure which, which mine it was. But regardless, that's basically what happened. And that was not in in the context of, you know, 
this huge build out. I mean, nothing was really going on on the demand side. It was just stagnant demand around that time. And we had that tremendous rally. And now we're in a situation where, as I've pointed out many, many times in many videos, all the positive news we're seeing on the demand side is demand continues to grow. And we get, you know, extensions of reactors, new reactors being built, uh, Japanese reactors coming back. And then we have on the supply side, uh, a market that was already undersupplied is now, you know, going to get hit by, you know, four or five million pounds. Uh, take that away. So eventually, you know, we're going to get to this inflection point where everybody's going to start realizing what goes on. Again, I would encourage you to read the um, Harris Kupperman article he wrote on inflections. He was talking about it in his um, Adventures in Capitalism blog. I'll put a link in the show notes, which will be below. And uh, he points out some other issues that could be a very positive catalyst for 2023. It looks like we're starting to get some action in the spot price. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, this is the kind of thing that can scare some fuel buyers and say, all right, we were sitting around here waiting, you know, playing chicken a little bit or musical chairs. It's time for us to move. And so, um, you know, as more contracts get written, you know, another thing I want to talk about when we talk about uranium investing or speculations, and I mentioned it on the live stream yesterday, uh, we had a live stream to commemorate the 10,000 subscribers. You can go watch that. I do apologize. Uh, if I, I was, it was pointed out to me that I missed a super chat and that's bad uh, chat etiquette. Um, if I uh, missed your super chat, I apologized your question because you're paying for me, you're paying to flag the question so it gets addressed. So I apologize for that. Uh, hopefully we won't do that in the future. But uh, anyway, getting back to the subject, uh, you have a couple now, a couple few companies that are moving from uh, developers or, you know, or previous mine operators like Paladin, right? The, the, their main mine has been shut down on care and maintenance for a period of years, Liner uh, Heinrich in uh, Namibia. And it's going to require a lot of money to bring it back online, something like $80 million. They raised the money. You had another company recently that had a has a very prospective mind in West Africa that is issued a hundred million dollar um, units, I think, uh, equity. And a lot of people are getting aggravated by this. They're like, "Well, they're, I'm being diluted." This is not dilution. This is this is presumably what people wanted. See, we're making the trend. We're, we're we're getting away from the sugar plums and unicorns, where people could say. I like this company, I like that company, I have a basic thesis about uranium and I can just put my hopes and dreams on this horse. And now these things have to actually start performing. You know, it's one thing to speculate and say, yes, uh, the management says this in the presentation and I think this is gonna happen and yada, 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 and the cost per pound is this. Uh, but as I said in this live stream yesterday, now you're gonna get down to where the rubber meets the road. Now you actually have to build the darn thing and bring it online and that's a different story and so what i'm the point i'm trying to make is what you might want to think about if you own some of these companies that are getting ready to transition i mean cameco and kaz Adamprom are big companies and and have a lot of experienced people top-notch people access to top-notch uh engineers and all this stuff and you just see that they're having issues in kaz Adamprom. 
Cameco's had issues in the past. These are very, very large mining companies that have been doing this for a long time. And so if you're progressing from uh, being a junior miner or a developer, and now that you've signed some contracts and you want to put the mine into actual production, you really need to watch what's happening there because the companies will not be able to get by on, you know, future aspirations that retail investors have put on the stock. They're actually going to have to perform. And let me tell you something, building a large, complex industrial facility like a mine is not easy. And so you really need to pay attention about who's doing it. Have they done it before? Have they been successful? Or, you know, what you have to be careful of is, well, this management really hasn't built a mine, but they they have this consultant. I mean, when I start hearing about that, that's makes me scared. Uh, how many uh, really successful uranium mine builders are there in the world? I don't know. Uh, these are questions you have to ask, though, because if, let's say, for XYZ company, they have an asset, they've been telling everybody how great it is, all the investors and you know analysts are very high on the project and think it's terrific, and then they raise all this money and then they start having problems, I can guarantee you the stock price is going to suffer. I guarantee you the stock price will suffer. You won't be able to get past on you know hopes and aspirations at the Vancouver Resource Conference that they, that people have been peddling for the last five years. If you're gonna if you're gonna transition, this is why I'd like to see a lot of these juniors just sell out to bigger companies. If you have a real mind, if you have a prospective asset, just sell it out or combine with another company that knows what they're doing, and go that route if you can. Trying to just issue a bunch of equity and having a single mine operation i'm not saying you won't be successful but it's a lot harder than i think most retail investors think i've built many industrial facilities i've never built a uranium mine or any mine but other things i have been involved with and every day at the project meeting is a fire hose of problems uh all kind of, I, I i'm not even going to get into it it's a ton of problems and so a hundred million dollars can evaporate real quick and when you have consultants involved, I mean, how invested are they in it? You know, I'm not saying that they're not competent. I'm not saying that EPC contractor is not competent. I don't know. What I'm saying is really pay attention now as some of these companies try to transition from building the mine to uh, or from, you know, being a junior and living off, you know, hopium, driving the stock price to, now you have to execute, build the thing, commission it, and operate it uh, profitably. You may bring the, there's been many, many mines, not just uranium mines, but many mines that have had all kinds of great, um, you know, feasibility studies and things like that. And then when they build the thing, it just doesn't work like they thought. Uh, one of the things is like the block and cave mine at Oyu Tolgoy in Mongolia. It's not they had a lot of problems. I'm not sure where it's at. I haven't been following the situation for a while, but I know that as they brought the thing online, it was it had a lot of cost overruns. The block and cave method they had was touted as being the best, you know, things in sliced bread. And then they had some issues with it. So it, it resulted in some operational issues. Luckily they had an open pit mine that was still operating. So I think covered up. And I don't know if those issues are resolved or not, but it's an, just an example of what can happen. Okay, these are complex endeavors. And so just don't assume that, well, they're going into production. They signed a contract with the Chinese National uh, Power Company. Uh, 
a nuclear power company, we're good to go. They're going to supply X amount of pounds at this price. And I put it in a spreadsheet and this is where, this is the share price should, you know, double or triple over the next couple of years. Don't assume that. You need to really pay attention if you're involved in, in, in companies like that, because uh, building and operating complex uh, facilities is not as easy as people seem to think it is. So again, big bull on uh, copper, as I've said many, many times before, you know, without sufficient copper, you just don't have the energy transition. You don't have the electrifications of the economy that many are pushing for. And here's what we have here. We have, uh, you know, Chile being one of the largest copper producers in the world. Uh, this is the production in billions of pounds per year. And you see that since 2018, the copper output has been declining. It's uh, in free fall. And if you pay attention to what's going on down there, they have a new a newer government that's not as, shall we say, mining friendly. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think a project recently was canceled. And then there were, I think I read an article where the government there because of the lithium mining potential that they have there, they're going to create a government mining company to administrate that. That should work real well because there's, uh, uh, there's been you know so many success stories of government-run mining uh, operations that are uh, well run and, and people know what they're doing. They're not infested with uh, political cronies or you know graft and corruption. There's only the best and brightest work for government mining companies. I'm being sarcastic, obviously, but. If you're going to have this electrification, as I've said before, you know, you need increased production, not lower, not lower production from one of the major copper producers in the world. Okay. I mean, you've got like Peru, Chile, and I forget the other country that's like the top three copper producers. And I know both Chile and Peru are struggling. And so if you don't get the production that you need, where's the copper going to come from? Uh, as I have repeated before, I like these provocative statements. Like, I'm not sure it's exactly 100% dead on, but Robert Friedland, uh, mining uh, billionaire, who's discovered two major copper mines in his career, uh, Oyu Tolgoy being one of them, and another one in the Congo, I believe, recent one that's uh, in, produc in production. Katanga, I think is the name of it. I can't remember. Anyways... Uh, he says at these mining conferences that in order to meet the goals that the world has put forward for the tra energy transition and electrification, the world needs to mine in the next 15 years, I think is what he said, 10 or 15 years, the same amount of copper that has been mined up to this date. So what I'm trying to tell you is we need to really accelerate copper mining and again, this is another place, another industry, another sector where insufficient investment has been made. And when you see one of the major copper producers, um, i.e. Chile, in decline and starting to drop off like 2022, maybe that's because of COVID. I don't know. I don't know all of the stats for the country, but then you have governments now in place in some of these places that are, uh, I don't want to use the word anti-mining, but they're not as supportive of mining as previous governments have been. So uh again you're going to struggle against all the easy stuff has been found head grades are going to be lower costs are going to be higher so you're just going to have a lot of problems so does that mean this energy transition happens maybe not it's probably not going to happen 
the way that many people are forecasting. Maybe it's only, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 or 40% of what we thought because we just don't have the raw materials. And so you still have the same amount of people that require energy. And so what does that mean for coal demand? What does that mean for oil and gas demand that we thought was going to go away? Remember peak demand? Peak demand is supposed to happen in the next couple of years, according to all the analysts. Okay. I believe oil and gas are going to grow. Demand for them are going to grow for a few decades at least. We're nowhere near peak demand. And this, you know, this uh, should tell you the story. This isn't just a one-off. This is all over uh, mining. Whether just about every sector in mining is facing the same thing. Complete underinvestment, declining production, declining reserves, lack of investment. Just at the point where all more production and more metals needed. So I don't know how to explain it any simpler. That doesn't mean copper goes up next week or next month or in the next three months. But over the next three to five years, I guarantee you copper is going a lot higher. Because it's not even just about the energy transition. It's the continuing development in the emerging markets. You know, uh, Gorian and Rosenzweig, I think like three or four years ago, wrote an article just about copper demand in India. And, you know, again, how many mini splits, how much copper is in each mini split and what's the market penetration of mini split air conditioners in India? And as people get wealthier, it's hot and humid there. What about those 230 million people in Pakistan? What about Bangladesh? What about Africa? What about the, you know, billion people in the world that have never flipped a light switch? So you can see where this is going. And you can see, I think, you should be able to understand by now the uh, what's actionable here, longer term. You know, very simply could have a recession. I get it, worldwide recession over the next year, like some people are forecasting, and the copper price wouldn't go up because, you know, copper demand would probably not grow or go down. But that's a short-term cyclical phenomenon uh, downturn or inside of a secular multi-year, probably multi-decade bull market. And so this doesn't help, right? This, this is the confusing, confusing nature of just one, one political administration in the world, i.e. the United States, the Biden administration. You know, it's kind of good that we end on this slide. You know, at the beginning, we were talking about the Chevron buyback and how the uh, Biden administration was castigating uh, the oil industry and Chevron in particular about spending money for wealthy shareholders to buy back stock to make them richer instead of, you know, investing in more oil and gas. But in the meantime, they're telling the oil and gas industry that they're going to put them out of business. That's the words that they use. They use those words. And so you have this example here of this very large mine up by Ely, Minnesota, that they've been talking about building for years, okay? And if you've ever been in northern Minnesota, it's a very good place to go for vacation, the boundary waters, camping, canoeing, all that stuff. And so, uh, but it's kind of a depressed economic place also. Um, and so they were going to have this mine. It's an underground mine. It's not an open pit mine. And, you know, when the Biden or when the Obama administration was in, they kind of killed the thing before they left office. Then Trump brought it back. And then the Biden administration now is killing it again. So the point being, it very well could be, I don't know, I haven't seen the environmental impact study. I don't know 
what it says. I don't know the all the politics up there with the First Nations people or, or Native Americans and the people up there. I have no clue. What I'm saying is I see more and more of this type of situation inside the context of I just explained why we have we're not going to have enough copper. And the Biden administration wants to have this energy transition. They're the large, they're probably the biggest advocate for it in the entire world. And again, we're killing off these, you know, potential huge mines. But no one has anything to say about what goes on in places like Africa where you have child miners and things like that. I guess what gets me is the hypocrisy. I don't like the hypocrisy. And what I that's one facet, okay? Personally, I don't like the hypocrisy. But if you look at this, what's actionable, there's no way you can have this energy transition if you're not going to mine enough copper. And you can always find an excuse now because all the easy stuff's been found. The stuff in the middle of nowhere, deserts and all. Now you're going to have to start making some compromises. And this is the problem. This is what Alex Epstein talks about in his books about oil and gas. You can't just say that all mining's, you know, because it's going to have a potential effect on the environment um, and it's so precarious you know that we can't put any controls in place that we can have to just ban all mining because anywhere you go in the world you can make the case of why you shouldn't mine there whether it's some little lizard or some smelt in a stream or some type of mosquito or whatever what have you or the boundary waters whatever the excuse is or the local people you know uh, some activists don't like it and some NGOs got in there and filed lawsuits then you can't have the energy transition because the copper has to come from somewhere. And so let's uh, look at some of the snippets here. The Biden administration moved Thursday to protect northeastern Minnesota's pristine Boundary Waters canoe area wilderness from future mining, delaying a potentially fatal blow to a copper nickel project. Goes on here and says the Interior Secretary signed an order closing over 350 square miles of the Superior National Forest and the Rainy River watershed around the town of Ely to mineral and geothermal leasing for 20 years. That's the longest they can do it uh, without congressional approval, by the way. Uh, and that's what I'm saying. You can have this reverse in the next administration. That you know, That's part of the problem. You have to have a actual policy here. You can't be swinging back and forth between you know extremes between every four-year election cycle. That's not going to work. Twin Metals says it can mine. This is the name of the uh, LLC or the company that uh, owns this. Twin Metals says it can mine safely without generating acid mine drainage that the Biden administration and environmentalists say makes the $1.7 billion project an unacceptable risk to the wilderness. Twin Metals says its design would limit the exposure of the sulfide-bearing ore to the effects of air and water. I don't really know. The point I'm trying to make is, is that you cannot demonize all of this development. You cannot tell the oil and gas industry to go out and drill because you're a populist and pump prices are high. You're keeping one eye on pump prices. And if they go high, you're going to castigate the oil companies and tell them to drill with all. I mean, they're taking in the money. What are they supposed to do with it? Okay. I mean, if it was drill, baby, drill time, then I guarantee you Chevron, as I illustrated, most a lot of oil companies would be out there drilling okay but they're not going to do it in the context of being you know demonized by by the federal government it's or by the media or by ngos or get sued you know you have people suing shell in uh the netherlands 
about the fact that like their cigarette companies or somebody tried to sue Exxon a couple of times about they knew about global warming and did anyways. Do people not understand that without oil and gas, you die? Without sufficient oil and natural gas, billions of people would could not exist on the planet. It's that simple. It's not a hard case to make. And yet we let these, you know, I said this before, I think on the on the live stream yesterday, I'll just finish up here. The adult person understands that life is a series of trade-offs. We make trade-offs all the time. We make compromises all the time. We have a certain amount of money in our personal life. We can buy a, a car. We can buy a house. We can save for a vacation. We can go blow it at the bar on Friday night. There's opportunity costs. There's trade-offs. There's consequences for doing anything. And if we say that if you ask the average person, I'm not talking about radicals on either side, which are very small minorities, vocal minorities, have you. If you ask the average person, yes, of course they want the environment protected. Yes, you know, but they they don't want to sacrifice their standard of living. They don't want to become poor. They don't want to struggle. And that's what these forms of dense forms of energy like hydrocarbons have allowed for us okay they have allowed us to operate machines to have processes that are supplied by energy inputs to make our lives easier to make our lives uh more enjoyable to make our lives longer to make them more comfortable to make them uh productive that's what these fuels do and you know, if you're going to electrify everything, but you're not going to allow the mining of the copper necessary to allow for the electrification, then I'm just looking at a crazy person. So without getting into name calling or political th situations, the bottom line is this is good for us. It goes back to what I've said before, and I'll close on this. Heads we win, tails we win more. And so with that, uh, close out for this week. Uh, appreciate the, uh, again, we had a pretty good time on the uh, live chat. You can take a look at it. I mean, it's just me th saying thank you and then uh, an answering some questions for like an hour. Uh, I kind of enjoy doing that once in a while. Um, but uh, that's it for this week. And, uh, you know, again, the show notes will have links to the articles. Uh, and also, if you are interested in subscribing to the newsletter, it's down there. Also a link. I would ask people that are subscribers that listen to this. I mean, my email is available. If you have any issues with your subscription, just email me directly. A lot of times people have all kinds of funky email addresses or, I mean, if you got Hotmail or like something like that, it's the stuff gets lost. So please email me directly. My email is available and uh, I will rectify the situation as soon as possible. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Appreciate your uh, support, and we'll talk to you next week.